0: there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from P.S. Literary Agency.
1: Hormone
2: harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, a company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, hormone harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit, feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for hormone harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the Acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com.
0: Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup Hi everyone, welcome to today's segment. Again, one of our new ones where we have the author joining us for the Books with Hooks and while we also get to discuss their book. So today's guest is Bryn Turnbull, who is the internationally best-selling author of The Woman Before Wallace, equipped with a Master of Letters in Creative Writing from the University of St. Andrews, a Master of Professional Communication from Toronto Metropolitan University, and a Bachelor's Degree in English Literature from McGill University, Bryn focuses on finding stories of women lost within the cracks of the historical record. She lives in Toronto. Bryn, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me on, everybody. It's such a cool show. I'm thrilled to be here. We're so excited to have you here because I absolutely love your books, Bryn. I actually want to kick us off today by discussing something that is actually a bit of a negative and I'm sorry about that but it's something that I really think our listeners need to be aware of that you as a writer can pour your heart and soul into a book you can sell it you put it out there the book gets published and then through no fault of your own the timing is just really bad because of something that is happening at the time. So can we talk about your last book coming out and just how unlucky you got with that one?
1: Yeah, I mean, I it was very much like a rug pulled out from under me moment. I wrote a book called The Last Grand Duchess about the fall of the Romanov Empire told through the eyes of Olga, the eldest daughter of Nicholas and Alexandra. And two weeks after that book came out, Putin invaded Ukraine. And interest in all things Russian just completely evaporated. And of course, there are so many more important things going on. There were so many important things and still are going on in the world regarding Russia and, and the Ukraine crisis beyond my little book. But yeah, I mean, it was definitely a disappointment for that to happen. You know, it's a book about fall of totalitarian regimes.
0: And it's a, it's unbelievable to know that it's still still going on now. Yeah, my heart broke for you when that happened. And for our listeners out there, this is something that can happen. Often it happens the other way around. Your book comes out and it's a pretty quiet book and suddenly something happens in the world that puts your book front and center and suddenly your book is hugely elevated because of that. But it's really, really heartbreaking when it happens the other way around, especially such an amazing book. So for those of you who haven't read that We're going to link to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. I want to give that book a shout out as well as the book that we're discussing today. So the book we're discussing today is The Paris Deception. Now, Bryn, something I want to chat about before we start with Carly's first query letter is I know a lot of emerging writers who are inspired by so many different things. They hear something on the radio and they begin writing that story. Then they'll read something in a book and then they stop the one story, move on to the next story. And so they've got a ton of first and second chapters, but they're just kind of fizzling out. In terms of you, what is it that is the siren song that draws you to a story and that makes you go, this is the story that I want to tell? And how did that happen for the Paris Deception? The Paris Deception
1: came out of a couple of different sort of inspirational threads that ended up tying together at the right moment. And I think that's something that can happen for a lot of authors is if you're kind of keeping your ear to the ground and you're looking for a story, that story will present itself through different ways. And for me, it was through finding a historical account of an art forger who deceived Herman Göring and sold him a fake Vermeer, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. And then through my brother, who asked me uh, my first book was dedicated to my sister my second book was dedicated to my grandmother and my brother uh we were up at the cottage one summer and he said I want when am I getting my book and I said what would you like me to write about and he said uh my favorite movie is the Thomas Crown Affair I want you to beat it and and so I kind of thought okay that's an interesting challenge all right so we've got Art Heist with the Thomas Crown Affair Art forgery with Han van Meegren, who is this historical Dutch forger. How can I tie those two ideas together in a really interesting and compelling story? And so that for me was kind of the genesis of the idea. And then, of course, I learned just looking through historical records and looking into time periods that fascinate you can be, again, so interesting. And I started digging into the art theft, you know, the theft that took place all across Europe by the Nazis of Jewish art collections everywhere. And, you know, we're talking millions and millions of dollars worth of of paintings, many of which still are unrecovered today. And so that was the third thread that came in, was this notion of stealing these art collections on behalf of their owners, basically, and, and saving them from the Nazis who essentially just stole them outright and put them up on their walls because they could. And as I said, a lot of those art collections are still unaccounted for today.
0: I love that your brother kind of helped be the inspiration for that. And I also (laughs) love when... When stories that feel like completely different stories manage to become interwoven into one story, because then it saves you on books. So you're like, oh, I have to write this story and then I have to write this story. And then you're like, wait a second, I can combine them. So this is going to work out really well. Okay, so we've got a lot more that we're going to discuss with Bryn in terms of the Paris deception. But for now, Carly is going to kick us off with the first query letter. Dear Ms. Waters, I'm hopeful you'll be interested in representing Redacted,
2: an 85,000 word upmarket market women's fiction novel. An inquisitive documentary filmmaker who pokes her nose into other people's secrets finds her own life upended while investigating the breakup of a cult favorite 80s band whose members include her mother and the aunt she's never met. A dual timeline is woven through text via clips from the documentary as well as occasional Instagram posts. This story is about complicated families, also features neurodiverse and LGBTQ characters and may appeal to fans of Taylor Jenkins Reid, Daisy Jones and the Six and The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, Donnie Walton, the final revival of Opal and Nev, The Go-Go's and Gilmore Girls. When 30 year old documentary director Sky Storm's career and health both hit a snag, she goes for broke by probing the mysterious breakup of cult favorite 80s band The Babies, short for Aurora Borealis for her next project. Chronicling the truth behind the band's demise would be a massive professional coup. She should already know the story, considering its former bandmates include her own mother, Rory, and her next-door neighbor and artistic mentor, Judy Newark. But both women have remained mum all these years, particularly with respect to another bandmate, Rory's long-estranged sister, Stella. Professional goals aside, Skye is also hopeful that Stella might shed some light on Skye's father's identity, a fact her mother has conveniently denied knowing. Preying on her mother's love or guilt or both, Sky wrangles the reluctant ex-bandmates to grudgingly reunite for a week at a beach home studio in North Carolina, where they'll record their first new song in three decades for the film and be interviewed for extra footage. When a tropical storm leaves them stranded, a long smoldering secret gets blown out of the water, one of which forces Skye to face a narrative she hadn't predicted and to choose whom she counts as actual family. A music and family-obsessed mom living with a chronic medical condition, I've had work published in the Washington Post. Additionally, my short story was included in the anthology Electric Grace Still More Fiction by Washington-area women. I'm also a member of the Women's Fiction Writers Association and blogged about music, parenting, social issues, and dealing with a primary immunodeficiency for over a decade. I'm a hashtag RevPit winner a member of hashtag binders, other random life accomplishments. I'm a three-time Jeopardy champion, one of the early tech women at AOL in the 90s, and the mother of a neurodiverse kid who, when young, sang with the seminal punk band X on the stage of the 930 Club in D.C. I'm delighted to share the first five pages from Redacted with you. Thanks for your consideration. Sincerely, Author Redacted.
0: Thank you, Carly. Okay, can you give us an indication of word counts and then your take on that? All right, this one clocked in around 448 words. Definitely, I think on the longer side,
2: there's a lot going on here. But I mean, I really, I do think this is a cool hook. There's a couple of things I want to talk about in general though. So first of all just with the comps. So I don't know where the Gilmore Girls comp is coming from. I'm like unless the dialogue is like so snappy cuz that's one of the, that's one of the things I think about with Gilmore Girls or like small town New England. I've just felt like the Gilmore Girls might be off the mark, but I again, I've only read obviously this this short bit, so I I can't speak to that, but right now it's a little bit of a yellow flag potentially for me. But I okay, so I do think the the hook here is pretty cool. This is one of the things, right? So Daisy Jones and the Six. Obviously, it's a hugely influential book. People have tried to do something similar to it in the past or since. I mean, you could try to emulate or use a formula of something like that yourself. It is totally possible. But it is just so hard to live up to something where it is just so beloved and beyond itself. Obviously there's a television show, right? So it it is just really hard to live up to something like that. And so I'm just wondering whether it's possible, obviously I'm also wondering, so the thing about writing a query letter like this also feels like, I'm just wondering if it's too neat and tidy, right? It's like, Oh, this character needs to put together a documentary. Oh, her mom just happens to be so-and-so and her aunt just happens to be so-and-so. You know what I mean? Like I don't want it to feel so coincidental again. It probably isn't. But again, when you write a query letter in this fashion, it's just so it it, it seems night and tidy and it could just be, you wrote a really great query letter. And so it does seem like, you know, beat, 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 beat. But I just, I want to err on the side of just making sure it doesn't feel too convenient. That's the only thing that I worry about a little, little bit about this. I'm just wondering, I guess, necessarily where the conflict is, because we know the conflict kind of happened in the past, right? Because there's this whole like estrangement happening with the mom and the aunt. And then later on, we figure out there's like the smoldering secret gets blown out of the water. But like, what's the secret? like, is it to something to do with the dad? We're focusing so much on the premise, which is interesting, but I just don't know where the actual drama is coming from in the present moment of this story. That's the part that I struggle with a teensy bit with this one. So I love that they're stranded in this beach together, this kind of like closed door, locked room kind of dramatic moment. I I think there's a ton of potential here. And I also think it's very cool that
0: you were a three-time Jeopardy champion. That is really cool. Thank you, Carly. In terms of the secret, depending on where it comes in the novel, do you think it's something that would work better if they disclose it in the query letter? Obviously, if it's a big reveal near the end, you don't want spoilers. But if it's something that comes earlier, how do you feel about them just telling you in the query letter what it is?
2: Yeah. I mean, this is a completely personal preference, but I have a brain like a goldfish sometimes. And so when I read the query letter, I can get really excited. And then the manuscript comes in and I'm like, I requested a really interesting manuscript. I wonder what this is about. Do you know what I mean? So I'm okay with more spoilers in a query letter because I can have a bit of a goldfish brain about so much, how much I read. Other people might feel really strongly about this. So my rule of thumb is really like, if it's a thriller, don't tell me, right? because obviously that's hugely influential to the actual book. If it's not a thriller, I would try to get me as close to the line as humanly possible. Like, so the smoldering secret, is it a, you could say long smoldering paternity secret. Like if it's a secret about the dad, like give me another word here about what the secret is. Try to walk me as close as you can to that line. That's what I would really love. But again, personal preference for me, because I might forget it by the time I actually get to the manuscript.
0: Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay. What was in those opening pages?
2: So we start with a timestamp. I haven't sang the timestamp jingle in a while, but um, here we are with our timestamp, September 2019, Brooklyn, New York. We start with our character, Skye. We are in Sky's point of view here, first person, talking about her idea, which is to, we assume, to work on this, this documentary. We quickly flip to something written in Courier New. So you can see there's like a, a formatting change here. A video of Kurt Loder, newscaster for MTV News, 1988. So you can see we're kind of working with this multi-media approach to incorporating information. And this is about the band. Then we go to a text from a roommate. Then we go to in-person interaction between Sky and the roommate. We're learning that they are USC film grads. Again, they now live in Brooklyn and they are working on this major project today. Then we go back to a video, the 1983 video of the band. So we're integrating a lot here, as you could probably tell from the query letter in terms of watching the documentary and then the two girls or young women interacting in real life and going back and forth. We're learning about the band and we're learning about the roommates and that's where it ends.
0: Wonderful. Okay. What was your take on them? Okay.
2: So I think two things. Number one is that this felt really young to me, the writing style. I, I So we get to the, at one point we, we know that they are Kind of, those are the 30, like on the cusp of 30, but they are kind of like an arrested development 30, right? Where it's like their roommates living in Brooklyn, like still trying to make their way in the world. So they, they feel young, but the writing also feels really young to me too. So... I just kind of want to flag that for the author that it's coming off really like almost new adulty, like really coming of age as, as new adults. I really didn't get the sense that they were 30. So I just want to flag that for the author. If that is intentional, not intentional I just want you to know that's kind of how it comes off. Even the dialogue, I think, comes off as quite young, early 20s. So again, just something, something to know about. So as I mentioned, we're flipping between a lot of different mediums here. So we have... IRL, like just two people interacting on the page. Then we have our two different types of video formats, text, and as was told in the query letter, some Instagram it is there's a lot going on in our brain in terms of like how we are going to process all this information and I think what ends up happening in these opening pages is that we just meet so many people and we meet them in so many different formats so not only are we meeting these two characters we're meeting all these band members through documentary it's just a it's a lot for our brain to process I would really like just to be like grounded in in IRL in real life right to start with and then maybe start to introduce some of these other elements as it feels natural because it feels a little bit forced to be like we're going to start with the two roommates sitting down to watch this documentary again for the book that's about to unfold so this is why i worry about the little coincidental bits or just like very obvious plot points kind of coming at us for a very linear narrative and i just want to be i want it to be a little bit more unexpected here there's some really great lines as i said even though it sounds young i don't mean that to sound bad like there are some really really great lines here a line that i liked was from above our makeshift desks twin diplomas from usc's graduate film program dared us to be successful I really liked that. And so, yeah, those are kind of my my main notes in terms of what to think about. What is intentional here? How is this coming off to the reader? Is it going to work? I mean, it's it's not for me to say, I think, whether it's going to work. I think maybe it doesn't work for me, but that's not to say that this potentially might not work for somebody else.
0: Thank you, Carly. Yeah, something to always keep in mind is it could be high risk, high reward. But when you're playing around with form and, and structure so much, it is it is very much high risk, which means it has to be done exceptionally, exceptionally well. Right. Before we go on to Bryn's query letter, Bryn, something that I love about your work is how you approach sort of morally ambiguous women in history. So I'm probably pronouncing um, her name wrong. Is it Fabian or Fabian and Sophie? Can you tell our listeners a bit more about them in terms of what makes them morally gray and what fascinated you enough about these kinds of women to to write about them?
1: Yeah. So in this story, the thing that I was really drawn to was the experience of people and specifically women during the German occupation of France, who were not outright resistors. Like we've all we, we've heard the story so many times. And there are so many wonderful stories about women who are operating the radio suitcases and who are bringing people over the mountains and into neutral territory. And I love those stories so much. But my question was what happens to everybody who maybe that's not a choice that they're able to make, maybe they have to just survive how do they do it? How do they get along in occupied territory? And can they do it without sacrificing sort of like a very core part of who they are? Fabienne starts out the war as a horizontal collaborator, because she's lost everything else. And that is her only option, really, at the very beginning of the book. And she gets out of that desperate circumstance quite quickly. But that haunts her for the rest of the book, you know, that decision that she had made, and the decisions that she makes kind of prior to everything happening those are the women that interest me it's why are you making these decisions how are you reconciling that with your morality and what can you do and how can you resist within your own sphere of influence and we see that resistance in in fabian's sphere of influence when she teams up with sophie this woman who has taken a job within the a, a museum working for Germans actually working for a German art commission that is stealing art from Jewish families and she accepts that job knowing what it is but again very quickly she realizes that her self-worth and her her principles are more important and and so how does she kind of how does she how does she move within this sphere where she has to hide herself and she has to make morally dubious decisions in order to kind of move towards something bigger and something greater I think that in literature, as in life, no one is inherently 100% good. Nobody inherently is 100% going to make the right decisions. So how can a character progress from making poor decisions into making good ones? How does a character progress from being somebody who is possibly making selfish decisions into somebody who is able to kind of take themselves and look at themselves in a broader context?
0: In terms of the term horizontal collaborator, was mm-hmm. this a term that was coined during that time? Or is this something that was then coined in hindsight? I'm really interested in that. No, that was that was the term at the time,
1: horizontal collaboration. And these were women who slept with German soldiers. And again, they made these decisions. They made the decision to do this based on a thousand different factors. Uh, France was starving. That was a very big factor. Germans got better food. And so some women would do this because they could gain better rations. Some women did it because they thought that it was going to be an easier life. And some women did it because they agreed with the Germans, as horrible as it is to say. And they paid the price for that after the war. Absolutely. But you know, not every woman who went into that position did so willingly, I would say. Looking at kind of the circumstances of desperation that surround that choice, I thought was was an interesting place to start the book.
0: Yeah, very much so. And for our listeners who are who are writing these kinds of characters, because we say how frustrating it is that the minute you write a woman who is, we say unlikable, but mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's like a blanket phrase. But the minute you're writing a woman who's morally questionable, et cetera, et cetera, you've got to work so much harder to get the reader on board. And reading mm-hmm. is supposed to make people empathetic. It's supposed to make them have this infinite empathy. And you should look at somebody in times of war and go, she has no other options. This is what she's doing. She's doing whatever she can to make ends meet. And yet I'm sure there are readers who come at it and are immediately super judgmental. So how Mm -hmm. do you, as the author, approach writing that character straight out the gate in a way that's going to make them vulnerable and that's going to make them sympathetic to the reader, despite the reader's sort of moral objections to the character?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's easy to look at characters in the benefit of hindsight and say, absolutely, I wouldn't have done that. But that's not always the case, right? And so I think starting out the gate and explaining their reasons, explaining why they are doing this, is the way to kind of a reader doesn't have to like the character from the outset but by explaining why they are doing what they're doing explaining that backstory explaining that desperation and giving that character enough of an awareness of what she is doing and why it is wrong that you're leading the you're you're kind of setting the foundation so that that character can grow in the story and the reader can see the path forward for that character
0: What I I love is that when you show how conflicted they feel Mm -hmm. within themselves in terms of their interiority, You see their own inner conflict, which then makes you as the reader understand the struggle as well. So it's not like they're just like, la, 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 I'm going to do whatever I want and to hell with everyone else. You seeing them struggling with these things as well in terms of their emotionality, in terms of their interiority. So something very much for our listeners to think about if these are the kinds of characters you are creating.
1: Their internal conflict, absolutely, but then also in terms of what they are seeing and witnessing in the world around them. I think that's also very key is, is having your character have an awareness of what's going on and seeing the world through their eyes and having them come to that realization.
0: And also seeing how the world reacts to them because you have instances Mm -hmm. where their neighbors are being super judgy and raising their Mm -hmm. eyebrows and making snarky comments as well. So we we also see them living with these desperate choices they've made, but really being judged for it as they're doing it as well. So Mm -hmm. that was all awesome.
2: rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers Everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD15 P O at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course.
0: Okay, Bryn, will you read us your query letter? Dear Cece Lyra, as an appreciator
1: of your Twitter writing tips and questions to ponder, as well as a fan of hashtag T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W, uh, I'm excited to share my query letter with you. Trouble Always Finds Them is a 93,000 word LGBTQ plus and women's historical upmarket fiction novel that would be enjoyed by readers of titles such as Plain Bad Heroines by Emily Danforth and The Lines of Fifth Avenue by Fiona Davis, as well as fans of the recently released Amazon Prime series, A League of Their Own. Trouble Always Finds Them is a dual POV and follows the protagonists, Francis Williams and Annie Parks, as they persevere beyond their marginalized positions to take on the corrupt Rev- Reverend Winthrop who is threatening to destroy Francis's family and is using the new girls reform school to traffic girls to members of Chicago's elite. Francis Williams is a gender nonconforming teenager trying to survive the 1890s and has recently completed their most successful runaway attempt to date. Unfortunately, Francis's temporary re- reprieve ends when Reverend Winthrop escalates Francis's punishment by committing them to the girls' reform school. While in confinement, Francis's familiar urge to flee is unexpectedly tempered when they begin experiencing acceptance and compassion from other struggling young people within the institution. When the Reverend's greed-fueled plans begin to reach towards Francis's newfound friends, Francis is forced to further stretch their ability to trust by enlisting the help of Miss Anne Parks. Journalist Anne Parks is assigned to report on the n- new girls' reform school. After successfully covering a high-profile murder trial, thanks to her father's name and status, she is allowed to serve as the city's only female reporter for a major paper. Unpopular amongst her peers, her editor, and her parents, her position remains precarious. Despite her tenuous position, Anne trudges forward enthusiastically and confidently until she gets to know Francis and begins investigating the dangerous Reverend Winthrop. Along the way, her path gets even rockier when Anne learns that the wife of the reform school superintendent is her former lover, Nora. As Francis and Ann join up against the Reverend, the depth of his reach and terror only expands. To confront their growing enemy, they must enlist the help of others while exercising wariness regarding who else around them might be involved. I'm a member of the LGBTQ community, a queer and women's history enthusiast, theater designer, mum, and spouse. I hold degrees in English, theater, and higher education, and have taught writing and humanities courses at the college level for over 10 years. In 2021, I published a nonfiction book, Iowa Women's Corrections, a History and all royalties are donated to a newly created Women's Corrections in Education Fund. I'm a two-time winner of the Iowa Playwrights Workshop, and have also published a number of peer-reviewed articles. I work in higher education, and I recently received a tapestry award from the Diversity Commission for my commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm currently working on my next novel. I appreciate your time, and I would be thrilled to send you a full or partial manuscript of Trouble Always Finds Them. In excitement and gratitude, Erica.
0: Wonderful, Brendan. Thank you. Do you have a word count on that for us? And then just your take on that. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So the word count of the cover letter is five hundred and twenty-seven words, which I mean I I feel is a little a little on the lengthy side. There's a lot to unpack in terms of this in terms of this story. Out the gate, I, I really like the sort of the comps that are given, Plain Bad Heroines Lines in Fifth Avenue, and A League of Their Own. I think that those all work. I, I've not actually read Plain Bad Heroine, so I don't know the time period of that book specifically, but I would say having a book that is sort of a set around the same time would not be a bad thing to include. Moving down a little bit, I think this cover letter needs more specificity. There are a lot of question marks that I had in terms of just sort of establishing the world that Francis is living in. They've recently completed their most successful runaway attempt to date, and Francis has a temporary reprieve. What does that mean? a successful runaway attempt. So so that's not a runaway attempt, that's a runaway. Where are they? Where, Where is this reprieve that they are having at the moment? There are questions like that lower down too. Journalist Anne Parks is assigned to report on the new Girls Reform School. Why is she reporting on that? Later on, she begins to investigate the dangerous Reverend Winthrop, but what is it that sends her? What's that inciting incident that sends her to the reform school in the first place? I have the same questions about her unpopularity. Thanks to her father's name and status, what are her father's name and status that give her this level of protection? If she has successfully covered a high profile murder trial, why is she unpopular and why is her position tenuous? Presumably, after successfully covering, a high profile case her position would be slightly more assured so these are the questions that came up in my mind when i read it that i think would would help towards kind of building building the world for the reader to to really kind of learn about same deal with the reverend's greed fueled plans we know that the reverend is using the reform school to traffic girls to members of chicago's elite i want a little bit more of that in terms of this story that is the big conflict. So give us another line on what that is and how the Reverend is doing this and how Francis and Annie maybe find out. So those those are kind of the specifics that I would want to see a little bit more of in this. I also would like to see a little bit more of where this story kind of ties into a more universal theme. What is the broader story that you're trying to tell? Is it a story of acceptance? Is it a story of chosen family? Something to kind of build into what that broader kind of, sense of the story and what that narrative is going to, why that narrative is going to resonate with people would be a helpful inclusion. The last thing I want to say before I pass it back over is at the very end, the sign-off note is in excitement and gratitude. I would consider going with a more traditional sign-off, such as thank you for your consideration, best wishes, that sort of thing, because I teach creative writing as well. One thing I always tell my creative writing students is that in a query letter, you are proposing a professional relationship. That professionalism means that you're here seeking an opportunity, but you're also presenting an opportunity to an agent, right? This could be your agent's biggest book. So be polite, obviously be respectful, but don't be afraid of addressing an agent as an equal, as opposed to someone who is coming in looking for something from that person.
0: Awesome, Bryn. Thank you so much. Especially since that author had such an amazing author bio paragraph. Oh, yeah. Some amazing credentials there, so definitely agree with you on that, Bryn. Okay, so what was in those opening pages?
1: So in the opening pages, we meet Francis. They're very new in a position, working for this woman, Madame Jeanette, who seems to run potentially a brothel, a house of ill repute. And Francis is kind of the—they're the person. They're the—they're the cleaner. They're the bottle washer. They—they're the coal sculler, I suppose. They're doing kind of everything that they can to maintain this position in the house, which does seem to be very much this reprieve for them. It's a place where they feel they are able to live. They've got freedom in their own kind of way. And they feel that they're kind of sort of going under the radar with everybody else in this building. Francis discusses their past, leaving their home where they did not feel accepted by the family. And they end up going outside and we meet their Not sure what the relationship is, whether it is just a fling or whether it's something more, but we meet Mary, who has this relationship with Francis, and Mary basically tells Francis that she wants something more than Francis is able to offer. And at the end of these five pages, we see somebody suspicious walking down the street, who potentially is Reverend Winthrop. So we've got some really beautiful, beautiful lines in these pages, and some really lovely, lovely imagery. I had begun to settle in, into a comfort similar to what home must have felt like for others. I thought that line was just so beautiful, and you really do get a sense of Francis's longing to have a family and to have kind of that that chosen group around them, which currently they don't they don't appear to have. Again, we need I think we need a little bit more context throughout this, and and a little bit more again specificity. There are a lot of questions that I think could be answered relatively early on. We talk about Francis, knowing that there are other there are older women who live in the establishment. They entertain the guests and they kind of pay Francis little mind. Same deal with Madame Jeanette. Francis is kind of sli- sliding under the radar. But through all of these kind of inner monologue thoughts that Francis is having, we lose sight of the main action. I would say consider early on have Francis interact with one of these women who live in the establishment. And perhaps that woman makes a comment as she passes, which would kind of, I think, ground a lot of the action and ground what is happening in Francis's life and ground that inner monologue that Francis is having over the course of the next several pages about these feelings of belonging and about the feelings of where they are. Another fabulous line is a little lower down, their nose is tipped just high enough to pay me little notice. I thought that was just a perfect line. But again, let's build that in by giving us kind of an action to ground where that thought is coming from. We need a bit more of this inciting incident of Reverend Winthrop at the bottom. I wanna see a little bit more of who this character is before you take us off the page.
0: Wonderful, Brent thank you. Colleen. and Cece, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Only that, when
3: this is ready, I would love it. If you're interested, of course, if you queried me because it seems really special.
0: Wonderful, thank you, Cece. All right, we're now going to move over to Cece's query letter. Will you read that for us, Cece? Dear Cece, As you are seeking dysfunctional
3: family sagas featuring flawed protagonists, I'm excited to share Redacted, my complete 95,000 upmarket fiction manuscript where the seemingly abandoned daughter of a Hollywood starlet must go off script to choose between love and security as she navigates tumultuous relationships with European royalty and American aristocracy. A multi-POV standalone with series potential told between the 1960s and 70s, redacted is an alternate history American wife meets The Crown, with a dash of the seven husband of Evelyn Hugo. Margot hasn't seen her movie star mother, who pretends to be childless to avoid matronly typecasting, since 1965. Without her former Benenden boarding school roommate, a Dutch princess, taking her in, Margot would have been homeless. Margot feels royal too, until a princely love triangle explodes, leaving Margot with no one to rely on but herself. After misadventures with swinging London rock stars and the Paris modeling scene, Margot finds true love unexpectedly pregnant and marrying Alexander, the son of an assassinated American presidential candidate. After their daughter is born in New York, a bombshell book drops abroad claiming alexander's family caused margot's mother's disappearance continuing to conceal her parentage margot is torn between love and lack of trust fearing the best path forward leads back to the toxic royals who betrayed her my experience working for and living with members of the redacted family inspired the story My publication history includes law review articles concerning legal solution for immigrant victims of domestic violence and human trafficking. I'm building an online platform under the pen name Redacted to market my fiction writing. Thank you for your time and consideration. I look forward to hearing from you. Warmly Redacted. Content warning. This book explores themes of overcoming generational trauma and includes references to mental illness, substance abuse, sexual content, pregnancy loss, suicidal ideation, unhealthy relationships, and oblique allusions to past child abuse and sexual
0: assault. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was the word count there and what was your take on that? So this came in at 279 words, an absolutely excellent
3: word count from top to bottom. First, this may be my ignorance, but what is American aristocracy? Like, I did not know that that was a thing. Do you mean American-based aristocracy? And if not, I want to know what American aristocracy is because I did not know this. Also, this last sentence of the first paragraph, you can you can write it as a multi POV standalone with serious potential. And that way you can just make it tighter. It's a small thing. I made the change for you. Our Kofi subscribers will be able to see it. Plot paragraph. What does Margot feel royal to mean? Like I don't know what you mean by that. Like she's not delusional, right? Like it must it, it must mean something. Like she feels safe. But given that there actually is royalty in the book, I don't know. It, it just felt confusing. So I wouldn't I wouldn't write it like that. There's too many questions. Like does she actually believe she's royalty? Like what's going on? I'm confused. Like is her mom not even helping her financially? I I think that's the case. And if that's the case, you don't need to make any changes. But That's definitely the vibe I got. And there's a reference at the bottom of the plot paragraph about her mother's disappearance, but we didn't know she was missing, right? Like it's not a new plot point. It's more that she finds out what's behind her mom's disappearance. And I thought she knew where her mom was, but her mom didn't want anything to do with her. So I would definitely clarify that. What I really like about this is there's so much plot and you've managed to pack this into a query letter. That's 279 words long. Like that is amazing. That's so excellent. I will say though, that the plot is not feeling like a dominoes tipping over situation. It's not feeling like because of a B happened and then because of B C happened, it feels more like each thing is happening separately. So if, if there is that sequential feeling to it, I would work on tightening that. And despite there being lots and lots of plot, what's at stake seems to be very interior based, which might be just the style. Maybe it's character driven. Maybe it's about her overcoming something, but given that the next line references the betrayal, maybe we need to understand what the betrayal is. So the picture is clearer. Again, it's just one of those situations that I wish I could talk to the author and be like, can you tell me a little bit more so we can maybe find a way to make this work? It's already excellent. Please know it's an excellent, excellent query letter, but I did have all these questions.
0: Thank you, Cece. Okay. What was in those opening pages and what was your take on them?
3: So Margot is in the car with her mom. Her mom's driving. Her mom is saying, look, if you don't like boarding school, you'll just meet me in LA. We'll go to the beach. The beach will be great. And Margot is thinking to herself, well, when we're in London, I know where to go during the day to be away from you, but in LA, I won't know where to go. They almost run over a boy who's on the wrong side of the road her mom and margot have a dialogue where her mom tells her look you're brilliant this is why i'm enrolling you in this school you won't need your face you'll only need your brain essentially and margot thinks that her mom is really smart and they walk into school she's expecting margot is expecting everyone to recognize her mom but there's no recognition and she kind of hates herself for kind of not liking that because she was expecting the recognition even though part of her also resents it but then her roommate does recognize her mom and we see her mom transform into essentially the character that she's famous for and margot clocking that in
0: wonderful okay so what did you think of that opening I very
3: much want to preface all my notes by saying really, really amazing pages. Excellent. I'm going to tell you everything that I think needs work, but this is one of those situations where it's like I only have so many notes because it's already so good, right? It's like staging a house. If the entire house is built and the plumbing is working and everything is amazing, then I get to stage the house in a way that's really excellent because the foundation's already there very small thing. Can we get the location along with the timestamp? I just think that would make it so much clearer because she references so many places and I'm like, where, how far away from London are we? Like, is it close? Like location with the timestamp would be so great. I am not clear on her age. And there's a paragraph I highlighted where her interiority is so mature, like so mature. Like, and I think that I would either tweak that or maybe make a reference to how people are always saying, like her mom's always saying that she's, you know, so much older or whatever. Like, I don't know, like just make it believable because that to me did not sound like a teenager. And I'm guessing she's a teenager. Her interiority could use a bit more layers. So one, the comment about her mom's intelligence. I love that she finds her mom intelligent. That is great. I did not see her mom being intelligent though. And she didn't think of sharp specifics that live in her head that are proof of her mom's intelligence. So we need to see that. Because her mom's saying it's not just Americans who drive on the other side of the road. Other people do it too. It's not enough to make a teenager think that her mom is so brilliant. Like it just does not add up. And the dialogue about the intelligence too, when her mom is saying, look, you won't need your face. Her mom's an actress. Her mom clearly needs her face. So what was going on through her head? Was she thinking that she... Was she wondering about the life her mom never took? Like, does her mom have any special interests Did she maybe consider going into? I don't know, getting maybe an art history degree, but she couldn't. I don't know. Like, what what is going on through her head in that moment? Very sharp, one line, very, very crisp. But children have an opinion of who their parents are and who their parents could have been and who their parents want to be that is very, very defined. And especially given that it's just her and her mom, like, I just needed more specificity there. She makes a reference to the boy, being on a school uniform and then saying to her mom, I thought this was an all-girls school. Is it the same uniform as her school? Because I don't think it is. So then if it isn't, then she wouldn't have thought that. Like she wouldn't be unintelligent like that. When she is about to go into the school, how many new schools has she joined? Is this her first time in a new school? Is it not her first time? First day of school, big, big, big deal for anyone. I don't care if you're a third culture kid who does this all the time, or if it's your first time, you're obsessing about the first day of school, so we need a little bit more comparison in her interiority. Also, when she sees her mom's transformation, okay, which is, by the way, so well-written, it's written like the first time she's seen that. Like, I don't buy that. Like, her mom has transformed on, like in front of her before. So her interiority needs to be anticipating and kind of like going through the motions. Oh, and now she's gonna do this, and now she's gonna do that, as opposed to being surprised by this, because she's not surprised. Yeah, so those are my many, many notes. Please know this is so excellent. I kept highlighting a whole bunch of things that I was like, wait, what about this? And then you did it. And I was like, amazing. So thank you for sharing.
0: Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Right, so Bryn, something we're fascinated by on the podcast is where authors choose to begin. I often sort of compare it to circling a building and deciding, are you going to come in through the back door, the chimney, a window, the front door, how are you going to do this? And whenever we see a prologue, I'm always fascinated to think, did the author begin with the prologue, or was this something they came back to afterwards? So you begin with a prologue that happens sort of a year before chapter One. We see Sophie standing in the shadows and she's watching all this art being burnt. Can you give us a bit of your process in terms of where you began the story if you began with that, and why you decided that was the best opening scene?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I know prologues are a very like they're They're very overused literary tool, I think and and so a lot of a lot of readers don't like them. A lot of authors don't like using them. The reason for this prologue is because the collection of art that Sophie and Fabian team up to start forging is considered degenerate art by the nazis and this was This was very much a thing. The Nazis had this notion of degenerate art, and degenerate art basically meant anything that wasn't directly representational, so like we're talking cubism, modernism, impressionism. All, you know, anything that didn't just take the world and present it as it was was considered degenerate. And of course, on top of that, LGBTQ artists, Jewish artists, again, minority artists, that was also considered degenerate. And so the Nazis hosted this exhibition called Degenerate Art, which I believe to this day is still the most attended art exhibition in history, where they deliberately misrepresented what this art was sent it all around Germany, and then piled it in Berlin in front of the Reichstag and burned it. And that is the context of what Sophie is watching in this first moment of the the story. And this is the art that she decides she needs to save because other works of art, classical works of art, she believes can be recovered after the war, but if the art is burned, then it's gone forever. And so that's where she sees this danger for this art and, and for what that art represents, right? It represents freedom of thought, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, all of this stuff that was so, so important. And that the Nazis were trying, of course, to eradicate. They're trying to eradicate dissension and individual thinking along with everything else. So, so for me, that prologue made sense to include because it happens so much earlier than the, than the rest of the story. I wanted to give it that break. And it is, it is a very separate and defining event in Sophie's life. Um, that when we catch up with her a year later, it's still haunting her. And it is still kind of the seeds of her mission were kind of planted watching this bonfire occur.
0: Yeah. And and also it's such a foreboding scene. It's kind of like the precursor to what's to come. Mm -hmm. And also what what I love about historical fiction is how it, it doesn't matter when it occurs, whether it happens 200 years ago, 100 years ago, there is commentary on what's happening in society today. And so how, when you have your reader reading that opening scene, like what is it about their own lives today and about society today that, it, that you want them sort of connecting with? Because that's so important with historical fiction as well. Yeah, I mean, I think his, history doesn't exist in
1: a vacuum and historical fiction doesn't exist in a vacuum. Unfortunately, there are real-life parallels to artistic censorship, which are happening today all over the world and that really was important to me to include this notion of safeguarding artistic liberty and safeguarding artistic expression freedom of expression because today we are seeing a rise in book bannings and that is something that seems to be gaining traction unfortunately and so the notion of censorship is never far never far away we think that we live in such a such a progressive and forward-thinking world but then these events occur and we can see the parallels. And I think it's important for our historical fiction authors to illuminate those parallels and to
0: draw those comparisons in order to make sure that they don't happen again. Yeah, 100%. History will keep repeating itself if we allow it to. So Brent, I love chatting with other writers who also teach creative writing because I honestly believe that there is an elevation that comes to your work once you teach writing. I was a writer first and then I became a teacher and teaching creative writing made me approach writing in a very different way. So in terms of that background, what advice do you have for emerging writers? Are there particular mistakes you see them making more often than others? Anything that that you can tell them that might be useful there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I
1: think think one thing that is important to keep in mind when you are building a story when you are building a a world really is that you are your readers only conduit into that world so make sure that you have got the specifics of that world set out and they are clear to you that the, the world the character's backstory everything that leads up to the start of the book have that all established On a page, even if it's not something that's going to end up in your story, have that kind of logic manual with you so that you can kind of draw from it. I always find when I'm creating characters, having a detailed backstory is like the most important thing that I can do because then it's set and it's done. And I've got something that I can refer to 300 pages into the book, even and kind of have that established in my own head. And elsewhere so that that story is all going to lock together. I would also say, I, I agree with you completely, Bianca, that teaching creative writing has made me a stronger writer, absolutely, because you are experiencing other people's work, you're experiencing other people's style. You know, that submission that I read today, I love, love, love the story world. And being able to look at it analytically, being able to look at other people's work analytically is such an important part in honing your own craft. So I would say to emerging writers, find your writing group. Find other writers that you can share your work with in a safe space and be able to kind of analyze each other's work because it's as important to look at other people's writing as it is to work on your own. Those are two sides of the exact same coin.
0: Excellent advice. And yes, so many people who join writing groups and who become beta readers do it for the reciprocal feedback. So they're more focused on the feedback that they're going to receive. When in all honesty, I think you grow as a writer the most by giving other writers critique than what you necessarily do by, by just receiving critique. Yes. Well, Bryn, we're at the end of our time. Thank you so, so much for joining us for our listeners. We will be linking to the Paris deception and Bryn's other books on our bookshop.org affiliate page read them. They're wonderful books. I'm a huge fan of Brin's and we hope to have you back again. Thank you so much. It's been such
1: a a pleasure chatting with you and, and reading through such wonderful submissions.
0: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.